Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder Homes is a production of iHeart Podcasts. At first moment, we heard what happened on the television, that there was a van full of Hasidic Jews, kids, going over the Brooklyn Bridge, and somebody started to shoot at them, and they, I think there were one or two killed. And then they were bringing him out. And it was like, oh my God. And then we come to find out that he was the one who shot those Jews in the van on the Brooklyn Bridge. When you're driving south on the FDR Drive and get off the exit ramp to the Brooklyn Bridge, you see the first of four blue signs overhead. Each says the same thing as if the city were really trying to drill the name into each driver's head. Ari Halberstam Memorial Ramp. In about 20 seconds, you're up the ramp, past the four blue signs, and onto the Brooklyn Bridge itself, which is the same amount of time it took for a man named Rashid Baz to fire into a white van carrying 15 Lubavitch Hasidic seminary students, killing one student, gravely wounding another, and injuring two others. A blue Chevrolet Caprice veered away from the white van as it rolled to a stop. Its back and side windows shattered. Traffic came to a stop. The van was roped off with crime tape, and nothing moved on the Brooklyn Bridge for hours that cold morning except for detectives and crime technicians carefully scouring the bus, which was now sitting crosswise on the on-ramp to the Brooklyn Bridge. It was a freezing morning in New York City and the temperature had barely budged. Pedestrians on the walkway above could see the cops' breath as they huddled and discussed the scene. 
at a car repair shop in Red Hook, Brooklyn, a livery driver named Rashid Baz accelerated into the garage and shouted at one of its workers. Fix this, he shouted, pointing at the shattered driver's side window. And then he pointed a gun at the employee's head. And fix it fast. It wasn't quite 10.30 a.m. on March 1st, 1994, but already coverage of the shooting was dominating the news. The city, already on edge after the first failed World Trade Center bombing the previous year, braced for more attacks that day. But there were none. This is Murder Homes. I'm Matt Marinovich. So back when I started this podcast in our first episode, we had talked to a man named Roy Condry. If you remember, he ran the website diedinhouse.com. On a lark, I had asked him to run a report on my home, thinking, based on what my neighbors had told me, I had nothing to worry about. Well, it turns out I was wrong. So no one has actually died that they found on record. No, no one's murdered. That's JB, one of my producers sharing news about what the report said. But... <laughs> They did find out that a man named Rashid Baz lived and was arrested at this address because he shot in 1994, March 1st, he shot a van of Orthodox Jewish students on the Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) And he killed um, a 16-year-old kid named Ari Halperson, and he wounded others. Yeah, no, I'm not. No, I, I actually remember the Brooklyn Bridge shooting. That's unbelievable. The strange thing about this is that I remember the crime. I was in grad school in Boston, but I was transfixed by it. The incident has since faded from my mind, just as it did for many New Yorkers. Of the thousands of drivers who pass underneath the blue sign that commemorates the Ari Halberstam Memorial Ramp, almost none could tell you what it stands for, or what happened nearly 30 years ago on that concrete curve of road leading to the world's most famous bridge. Rashid Baz, after threatening the car repairman, hunched over and walked down Van Brunt Street, a 9mm Glock still in his pocket. He was a heavy-set man, barrel-chested, with a beard and trimmed goatee, dark hair. But on a frigid morning in Red Hook, passing other repair shops and metal welding factories, no one gave him a second look. Rashid Baz, a Lebanese immigrant, a recent convert to Islam, and a man who might have had at most one friend in the working-class neighborhood of Sunset Park where he lived, must have felt like he was the only man coming home early from work that day. He unlocked the door to the row home I live in now, where he lived with his wife and two kids and sister-in-law, walked up the stairs, and retreated to the small room that my daughters have always hated sleeping in. The room was littered with Boz's anti-Semitic literature, a heap of clothes that lay barely folded on the floor. It wasn't even noontime. What was Rashid Baz thinking as he looked out the very same bedroom window I'm staring out now? Did the anger, which had been burning inside him for days, finally subside? Did he replay those 20 seconds again and again, the way one rifle jammed, then another, until he finally had to reach for the Glock? He must have been listening to the radio, the volume turned down low. This I know for sure. He wanted to know how many victims there were. 
In the other two rooms of the main floor of this house, his wife and kids saw the closed door and they didn't even think of bothering him. Recently, he'd been more distant than ever, prone to moods they couldn't seem to snap him out of. Rather than share tea with them, he holed up in the small room and read his anti-Semitic screeds, prayed five times a day. Less than 12 hours later, at 2.38 in the morning, there would be a heavy pounding on the door of my home. Police cars had blocked off both ends of 45th Street, and an emergency response team huddled outside my door. In the windows of the row homes across the street, curtains were parted, neighbors woken up by the shouts, and sirens peered out. A cop with a megaphone pointed it at the second-floor window of my home and told Rashid Baz that he was surrounded. A few minutes later, their arms hooked under each arm of his leather jacket, he was taken into custody and led down the same three blue stone steps I walked down every day, squinting into the police cars, spotlights, handcuffed, the skin under his eyes puffy from lack of sleep. I asked my neighbor, Marisol Hurtas, whose voice you heard at the beginning of this episode, what she remembers about that night. I think it was maybe around 9 or 10 when they took him out. Because, I mean, it was cops, a lot of activity going on. We had the news reporter, NBC. We were out the house, out in the window, and they were asking us questions, you know? So we were like... You know, we, we said we didn't know much, you know, about what was going on because something we found out the next day. But and then everything, they kept quiet to themselves. Because Barbara was always across the street with us, with her kids, or Sorry. our kids we were over there. And we were like family-type, you know, neighborhood. Manny is Marisol's son, and he joined our conversation too. Manny told me he used to play with Rashid Baz's kids at the home I now live in. Friend lived in the house, Marshall, yeah. and like, was he the best friend related to the yeah, 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 at St. Vincent's Hospital, just a few hours after Rashid fired automatic weapons at the bus, a 16-year-old boy named Ari Halberstam was still on life support. He would die two days later from gunshot wounds to the head. There were occasional screams of disbelief from his mother, who was comforted by the many Lubavitchers who had converged there. A boy named Nachum Sasankin was also in grave condition, but despite a gunshot wound to the back of his head that would cause lasting brain damage, he would live. We'll be back after a short break. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. 
Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. As you know, the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Just this week, a neighbor across the street told me that at 8 in the morning, he had seen three men run down the block and beat and rob a man who was carrying a bag of tools. I always think of this as a safe neighborhood, but I have to admit, I don't have that feeling 100% of the time. That's why I feel a little bit more at peace knowing that Simply Safe, with its entry sensor, motion detectors, and cameras, is always on the lookout for me. Simply Safe was named Best Home Security Systems 2024 by the U.S. News and World Report. And it's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/homes. That's simplysafe.com/homes. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Murder Homes. The moments after Rashid Baz left his Chevrolet Caprice at the repair shop, it turns out that the car repairman at Halal's repair shop in Red Hook was also listening to 1010 Winds. As he grudgingly began to assess the damage to the driver's side window of the Chevrolet Caprice, he noticed a single bullet shell on the floor underneath the passenger seat. He noticed this just about the time the news anchor described the shooting spree on the bridge, with a vague description of the vehicle involved. It wasn't hard for him to put two and two together. Rashid, pumped full of adrenaline as he caught up to the white van on the on-ramp, had fired through his own window first. The repairman called the police, 
Detectives arrive soon after, scouring the car and tracing the license plate. It's funny how 1994 starts to look so vintage when I look at the photographs online. The crime technician who dusts the Chevrolet has a mullet. The car itself looks like a relic. Here, in the small room my daughters refuse to sleep in, with its one window and rusty child window guards, Rashid pulled on his sweatshirt, a cheap brown leather jacket. In his last hours as a free man, he walked back down the block where everyone knew him and didn't know him, nodding at a neighbor who lived a few homes away. Did Rashid return to the car repair shop? Did he walk for blocks, circling his own neighborhood, trying to slow down his churning thoughts? Did he want to talk to someone, explain to one human being why he did something so terrible? There was no one to talk to. His parents were living 5,621 miles away in Lebanon. At the livery cab depot, he rarely spoke to anyone. Even at the Bay Ridge Islamic Center, where he had been dutifully attending the fiery sermons of an imam calling for vengeance after a massacre in Hebron, he was not required to say a word. But before he had committed murder on the Brooklyn Bridge, he had been increasingly enraged by a deadly attack on Palestinian worshippers at a place called the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron in the West Bank. He listened with growing anger, and then he left, so flushed with rage he could barely speak. Here's forensic psychologist Douglas Anderson's court testimony, in which he discusses the massacre and its effect on Rashid Baz. What was your accounting, your own version of the emotions that the defendant felt at the time upon learning that? Well, he was furious. He was terribly upset. In fact, a friend, Mufak, describes it like sparks were flashing from his eyes. That's what he said. And this was a terrible rage that he was experiencing at what this bearded Jewish doctor from Brooklyn had done to his fellow Muslims in the mosque in Hebron. And his friend had never seen him before, Baz, being that angry before. All right, and what did Mufak tell you what they did then? They went to the mosque. And at the mosque, they heard an imam or religious leader, a Muslim religious leader, speak. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, just before, the defendant had said in response to hearing about Hebron, they did it. The bastards did it. That is right. And then he went to the mosque, and according to Mufak, he heard the imam say that this takes the mask off all of the Jews. It shows them to be racist and fascist, as bad as the Nazis. Palestinians are suffering from the occupation, and it's time to end it. Isn't that what Mufak told you the imam said while he and the defendant were in the audience in that mosque? Yes. Now, doctor, didn't the defendant tell you that all Arabs and Muslims should feel the same? Yes. Didn't he tell you that after hearing about what happened at Hebron, that the distinction between Israelis and all other Jews, including American Jews, became blurred for him? Yes. Always a hothead slightly suspicious of the world around him, which he saw as vengeful and always dangerous, Rashid Baz carried guns in the trunk of his livery cab, and when he was on duty, he always carried a gun under his seat. Was it because he was looking for trouble, or was it because he wanted to protect himself? Like so much of what I would discover about Rashid, there's a doubleness, two ways you can see him. We'll be back after a short break. 
Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back with Murder Homes. In 1994, the most dangerous job you could have in New York City was livery cab driver. They were shot in the back of the head at night and robbed. Their cars left at deserted intersections where traffic lights still turned red to green. The windows shot out. Their bodies slumped over. Rashid grew up in wartime Beirut always with an earshot of gunfire and explosions. And now, driving the streets of New York City, he was always just an unlucky fare away from violence. The guns and their role in the shooting spree will be the defining fact that will send Rashid to prison for 141 years. But rewind once more. 
In the five days leading up to the Ari Halberstam murder, this has been what's on Rashid's mind. It's a place called the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron, the legendary gateway for the Garden of Eden. It's a mosque that sits 30 miles west of Jerusalem in the West Bank. And like so much of this story, there's a dividing line, two ways of seeing things. Half of the building is a synagogue, and half of it is a mosque. Jewish and Muslim worshippers often come to violent scuffles here and constantly need to be separated. The state of Israel forced to come up with new rules to prevent the never-ending threat of violence between the two groups of worshippers. Who has to pray outside on certain days? Who is allowed inside? Two gods, one windowless temple with six-foot thick stone walls, endless rising tension, only silenced by periods of negotiated prayer. On February 25, 1994, a 37-year-old Brooklyn-born man named Baruch Goldstein ritually bathed himself, changed into an Israeli military uniform, and caught a ride to the Cave of the Patriarchs, where 800 Muslim Palestinian worshippers were praying. Carefully adjusting a pair of firing-range ear protectors over his ears, he quietly stepped out of the searing midday heat and into the cool shadows of the cave, where he opened fire with an IMI Galil assault rifle, killing 29 worshippers, including six children, before he was subdued by the crowd and beaten to death. Days of riots followed, more deaths. Years later, Goldstein's gravesite became an ornate shrine to far-right Hasidic sympathizers, 10,000 of them paying their respects to a man who gunned down innocent men, women, and children until Israeli authorities were forced to bulldoze it down, only leaving Goldstein's tomb itself, on which these words are carved to this day. His hands are clean, his heart is pure. There's even a song in his honor that Jewish settlers sing in the faces of Palestinians at a mass protest years later. Dr. Goldstein, there's none other like you in the world. Dr. Goldstein, we all love you. He aimed at terrorist heads, squeezing the trigger hard, and shot bullets and shot and shot. In a recent 2023 poll, 10% of Israelis believe he's a hero. Dr. Goldstein, as his patients called him, was supposedly so mild-mannered that he would leave operating rooms to cry, so dedicated that he would perform open-heart surgery on the side of the road. But at the same time, he hated Arabs so much he refused to treat them. Goldstein had left a thriving practice in Brooklyn to return to Israel, where he would commit a terrorist act in the West Bank. Rashid Baz would make the reverse journey from Beirut to Brooklyn, just as filled with rage in the end, and commit his terrorist act. But their lives intersect. They are inseparable. In the five days after Dr. Goldstein, the mild-mannered and soft-spoken doctor, murdered 29 worshippers, Rashid Baz read everything he could about the massacre. At the Islamic Center in Bay Ridge, the imam compared it to a Nazi atrocity. After his arrest, Rashid Baz made a taped confession. He described himself as being upset by the incident at the Cave of the Patriarchs and says he supported acts of vengeance. All right, Rashid, uh, let's get started. You want to just tell us, uh, how upset were you? I was upset, but not upset to go do something. Were you upset to say something? To say something? I mean, did you make comments about it? You know, about what should be done about that? Should be done about that? Yeah. 
In other words, did you, when you were talking with your friends, did you express your view of how you, uh, how you, as a Lebanese man from Beirut, should deal with the situation? Like what happened in Lebanon. I told them it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And they should take revenge. And they should what? Take revenge. That they should take revenge. Right. Then who should take revenge? The people over there. Rashid Baz's fortunes, after getting caught, only got worse. He was assigned an extremely conservative judge named Harold Rothwax, who was so hardcore he once threw a court stenographer in prison for not showing up to work. A lawyer named Eric Sears defended him, and with the help of a forensic psychiatrist named Douglas Anderson, whose testimony you heard earlier, they desperately tried to come up with an effective strategy. Rashid met with Anderson three times at Rikers Island. It was the first time he tried to explain his reasons for what he did, but he grew frustrated as he spoke. He was never completely fluent in English, and there were so many contradictions he needed to clarify. He grew up Druze and converted to Islam. He carried guns in his cab for months, but had no intention of using them until the Cave of Patriarchs Massacre. He wanted Anderson to understand how much bloodshed that he had already seen growing up in Beirut, that the violence he witnessed as a child had shaped him. He wanted this stranger, who had to grasp his entire life in three sessions, to try to understand how out of control he felt upon hearing of the Goldstein Massacre. Or at least that's the defense strategy his attorney decided on. Because what if a livery cab driver, a friendless loner, a man who woke up every day feeling like a nobody that the world could shrug off, a man who once confessed to a neighbor on the street I live on that he didn't know who he really was? What if he finally thought he had a purpose, just as Dr. Goldstein thought he had found his? Here is Dr. Anderson again on the stand. You mentioned earlier the incident in Hebron, the massacre in Hebron. Yes. Do you know when that incident was in relation to the events on the Brooklyn Bridge? That was Friday, February 25th. That would be some three or four days before the event on the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm -hmm. Four days. In your opinion, doctor... Did the Hebron incident or Mr. Boz's reaction to the Hebron incident have any impact on his state of mind during that time? Yes, it had an enormous impact. In what way? He was enraged. He was absolutely furious. Uh, he was... I think Hebron put him from condition yellow to condition red. Rashid Boz would tell Anderson that it was as angry as he'd ever been in his life. But the PTSD defense failed. The prosecution was able to dredge up its own psychiatrist, who convinced the jury that a man carrying two semi-automatic rifles and a handgun in his livery cab was a hair-trigger-tempered hothead just waiting to commit a hate crime. Add to that the fact that anti-Semitic pamphlets were found in his home on 45th Street. My home, my daughter's room, the one they insisted tacking up a hand-painted sign over the door that said, Good Vibes. On January 18, 1995, Rashid Baz received a term of 141 years in prison with no chance of parole. Judge Harry Rothwack stated that Baz deserved, quote, the most severe punishment. I talked to clinical psychiatrist Dr. Judith Joseph, who you heard from in one of our earlier episodes, 
and asked her about Rashid Baz and his PTSD defense. While she didn't treat Rashid Baz, she was able to offer insight based on her clinical experience. Dr. Judith began by telling me that people with PTSD feel as if they're not part of the community anymore. With PTSD, so people often think that like the world is bad or I am bad or no one will love me. They may feel as if they're not really a part of a community anymore. They may feel detached from situations. And then there's the arousal symptoms that you can have with PTSD. This is things like a pronounced startle re- response. So if someone walks through the door and they're not going to hurt you, but just that trigger makes your body jump into fight or flight, or they're hypervigilant. They think that just around every corner, something bad is going to happen. And then there are other type of subtypes of PTSD where people don't feel as if they're in the room that they're in. They're, they're not in, in that reality. They feel as if they're kind of floating above the room, or they feel like as if they're not a part of themselves. So at times they just freeze, they can't move, or they just seem like they're not even in their bodies. But what about Rashid? Did she buy his defense? You know, a a very good mentor of mine at Columbia would say mental illness is no excuse for bad behavior. And in the condition of hate and, and racism, we're very careful to delineate that hatred and racism are not mental health issues. So someone who does have complex PTSD, who has been through horrific conditions, can become more triggered easily by prompts in the environment. However, it's a different case when you're planning out a hate crime because that requires executive functioning. That requires time management. That requires gathering materials. That requires a plot. And so that's a very different mechanism than being triggered in a moment. You know, I haven't treated this person, but that's a far stretch. Ten days after the Brooklyn Bridge shooting, the Hamas movement in Gaza released a communique praising Rashid Baz's attack on the van. Just as Israeli extremists had deified Goldstein, Hamas embraced Baz as a hero as well, giving him the title of Muhayyid, a holy warrior, and Ibn Islam, a son of Islam, meaning one who serves both as role model and inspiration to others. In the end, they had both become formally recognized heroes and terrorists, but infamy isn't always a level playing field. Rashid Baz died last year in prison. When I contacted his lawyer, this was the first he'd heard of his death. When I talked to his former forensic psychiatrist, he hadn't been aware of Rashid's death either. Nearly 30 years after Rashid had managed to transfix an entire city, his passing hadn't been mentioned in a single news article. They both asked why I was interested in the case, and I stammered for a bit, and then I told him the truth. I found out he lived in my home. Hardly anyone wants to talk about Rashid Baz. The forensic psychiatrist said he lost the files. The lawyer said that attorney-client privilege survives the death of the client. The pizza place where Rashid used to meet his one friend, Mufak, for earnest discussions about Islam, no longer exists. The repair shop where Rashid left his blue Chevrolet Caprice is long gone. He's dead, but for a case that touches on a conflict that still makes headlines, it's odd that he's on the verge of disappearing. Even Marisol and Manny are at a loss for words when I ask what he was like. Even in his own home, he was a kind of phantom. Like I said, we didn't verbally talk at all. Never heard him spoke or anything. Most of the time, I used to be in the gate, and he used to be with the kids in the front, and then he would go upstairs, like coming out of work and 
sit down, be with the kids for one, and then go upstairs. Yeah. yeah. But other than speak, no. I'm not sure I believe in ghosts. I think that's a weakness of mine. Because as host of a podcast titled Murder Homes, I think that's a deficiency. And I'm going to have to work on that. Because I want to believe in them. I want to believe in Rashid's ghost. Because first of all, no one wants to talk about him. So maybe finally he will. Maybe I finally hear his voice in some strange way. The ghost of Ari Halberstam. I want to feel it the next time I drive up that on-ramp. Before you get to that postcard view of the East River where you look right, especially at sunset. The ghost of the 29 worshippers Baruch Goldstein murdered. They must be somewhere. And Dr. Goldstein, too. One of the types of crimes that bother me the most is random violence. Strangers who say one wrong word, bump a shoulder, stare too long, with one ending up dead. There's a lot of that in Brooklyn where both Rashid and Goldstein made their home. In fact, lived just miles away from each other for years. I wonder the closest they might have come geographically. And because the worst crimes demand some sort of useless reconciliation fantasy in my mind, I even imagine those two ghosts. Rashid driving Goldstein somewhere forever in his blue Chevrolet Caprice, forced to finally figure out where their real home is, and if it's a place, not here on Earth, that they can finally occupy together. There's one more thing. Just when I thought the darkest story of my home had been exercised, Manny leaned forward and told me there was something else. He asked me if I wanted to hear about the ghost child he saw twice when he and his friend were playing in my home. Yeah, this shit in house. This is Murder Homes. I'm Matt Brnovich. Murder Homes is created by and executive produced by Matt Marinovich. Executive producers are Jennifer Bassett and Taylor Shacoin. Story editor is Jennifer Bassett. Supervising producer is Carl Cadel. Producer is Evan Tyre. Sound design by Taylor Shacoin, Evan Tyre, and Carl Cadel. Special thanks to Ali Perry and Nikki Ator. Murder Homes is a production of iHeart Podcasts. For more shows from iHeart Podcasts, visit the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.